Good morning. So in early 2019, comedian Patton Oswalt surprised anyone who followed him on Twitter. Those of us who know or have seen Oswalt in action know that he can be sharp and biting in his comments, especially if you're heckling him or targeting him on, targeting him on Twitter. It began with a sarcastic tweet uh, from Oswald aimed at then-President Trump. Trump supporter named Michael Beatty tweeted back insults and accusations at Oswald. Oswald shot back again, as he did. But then he began to scroll through Michael Beatty's timeline, his Twitter timeline, and discovered some things that caught him by surprise. He tweeted the following, slightly edited for Sunday morning consumption. Oh man, this dude just attacked me on Twitter and I joked back, but then I looked at his timeline and he's in a lot of trouble health-wise. He's been dealt some terrible cards. Let's deal him some good ones. Click and donate just like I'm about to. Oswald donated $2,000 to Beatty's GoFundMe page where he had asked people to help him raise $5,000 to cover recent medical expenses. Now, Patton Oswalt, to my knowledge, doesn't claim to be, have any kind of faith at all, but um, he acts as though, at least in this instance, that, he has been reading, as the, that he's been reading the New Testament, in particular, First uh, Peter. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, Peter told his readers not to repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but to repay evil with blessing. We talked about that last week. He knows this as a hard bit of teaching, and so he makes his case, as he's done several times in the letter, by going back and quoting from the Old Testament. In this case, he reaches back to Psalm uh, 34, which is that uh, we find in uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. If we love life, if we want to see good days in this life, the psalmist writes, we must keep our tongue from uttering evil and deceitful speech. And that's hard, isn't it? I mean, I preached this last week, and by 6 p.m. I was struggling to practice what I preach. <laughs> Furthermore, we, we must choose not to do evil, but to do good. We must... Pursue peace even with those who do us evil. Hard, hard teaching. Simple to understand, but not easy to do. That's why it's in the Bible. If it were easy, we wouldn't need this in writing. Again, back in verse 9, Peter writes, Do not repay evil, for evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, last week, very briefly, I said I wasn't even sure what that blessing was that we were to inherit. I've changed my mind. I think I know. I think it's actually laid out for us in Peter's quotation of Psalm 34. It's the love of life. It's the good days on planet Earth that we find in verses 10 and 11, and in what follows in verse 12, still quoting from Psalm 34, Peter writes in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If we do the right thing, if we keep our tongues from speaking evil and our lips from deceit, if we turn from evil and seek to do good, 
we inherit a blessing. God's eyes are upon us. God is attentive to our prayers. And God's face is not turned against us. And that does not mean that if God's face is against us, that he hates us, of course, or that God is out to get us. No, this is poetry. Psalms are poetry. They don't need to be taken too literally, but they should be taken seriously. To say that God's face is turned against us when we do evil is to say that God does not bless evil. God does not bless evil. So if God is against us when we do evil, speak evil, and disrupt peace, and if God is for us when we do good, speak good, and pursue peace, and turn from evil, Peter then asks the question that starts out our passage for today, verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? There's a word in the Greek that the NIV does not translate, and it's that word I've inserted there. Where it occurs in this sentence, it's the word chi. Chi is a versatile little word that can be translated as all these other words. The translation and is most common. However, depending on the context, it could be translated as then. And if that's the case, in uh, this passage, it directly connects to what happens before, what Peter's talking about before. He is, he is referencing back to that, what he's just done when he quoted Psalm 34. So Peter would be saying, if God is on the side of those who do and seek and speak righteously, even in the face of evil and suffering, then who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? If God is on the side of those who do and speak righteously, even in the face of evil and suffering, then who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? One more translation issue, and then we're going to wrap it up together. Most literally, the passage reads, then who is going to harm you if you become zealots? for what is good if you become zealots for what is good some translations say zealous for what is good or devoted but the word is not an adjective it is a noun zealots a zealot in that world was a passionate jewish nationalist who was willing to do just about anything to end um, roman oppression to liberate the people of israel from rome in some cases even to the extent of violence A zealot for what is good, however, is someone who is purposely going about doing good even to their enemies, even at the risk of having to suffer for it. A zealot for Jewish nationalism may well do violence to their enemies, but the zealot for what is good, the faithful follower of Jesus, must not do violence. Any violence will be something we suffer from others, not something we do to them. Any violence, as people who are zealots for what is good, any violence will be something we suffer from others, not something we do to them. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus handled these things. So putting it all together, the transition from last week's passage to this week's passage would read like this. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Then who is going to harm you if you become zealots for what is good? And the answer is, certainly not God. God is against those who do evil and for those who do good. God is with us. God is on our side. And reading these verses in this way reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words over in Romans 
chapter 8, after telling his readers that even in their present suffering, they can know that God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, he asks this question, Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer, of course, is no one. No one can be against us. In fact, I'm going to read to you a larger section of uh, Romans 8. It's a classic passage, and I am invite you simply to hear it. You're not going to see it on the screen. I'm just going to read it. I want you to listen to it. And if you, if you are personally going through something right now, something challenging, something painful, some grief, some suffering, if you, if you feel you are misunderstood or, or, or maligned or persecuted in some way, and you just wonder if God has attended your prayer, I want you just to hear this good news as I read for you from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a mic drop moment from the Apostle Paul. If God is at work, even in our suffering, if God is able to take the evil that others do to us and to empower us to bless them and to do good to them anyway, If absolutely nothing in the entire universe is able to separate us from the love of God and from God's good and ultimate purposes for us, maybe we can find the grace to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who persecute us, and to do good to those who do evil to us. And Peter was saying these things to enslaved people back in chapter 2 a few weeks ago. I don't know about you, but that was uncomfortable for me. I'm so glad Chuck had to preach that passage. We, we wish Peter would have said more. I, I wish Peter would have said more. But enslaved people in Peter's day simply didn't have any options if their masters were cruel to them, mistreating them. Their, their options were to stay or to run away. And the punishment for running away was to be whipped, to be burnt with a hot iron, or even to be killed. So for Peter, the best option seemed to be to stay, but to do so in a way that those who were enslaved might win their masters over and might win them to the faith. The Apostle Paul had something similar, a similar challenge. 
in a very brief letter that he writes in the New Testament called Philemon. There Paul is writing to Philemon, who's runaway slave Onesimus. Paul has, at least traditionally, led to faith. And Paul has written a masterful letter, quietly, subtly, might argue sneakily, urging Philemon not to take any legal action against Onesimus and to free him from slavery, though he never actually uses those words. After laying out a beautiful opening greeting and a prayer of thanksgiving for the loving brother in Christ that Philemon has been to him, Paul writes this in verses 8 and 9. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Later on in the letter, Paul suggests the reason Onesimus uh, may have run away in the first place was so that he could come to faith and that Philemon, quote, might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother, verses 15 and 16. While down through history, the New Testament has been used to justify slavery, it is clear that Paul was at work moving things toward a redemptive trajectory and an end to slavery early on and so was Peter even though Peter reminds his readers that God is with them if they choose to do the right he does acknowledge that suffering is still a reality that you can do the right thing and you're, you still may suffer so he adds this in verses 14 the first part of verse 15 but even if you should suffer for what is right you are blessed do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. When we, by the grace of God, are able to live our lives as Peter instructs us, when we, when we have the courage to love our enemies and to bless them, people notice these things. Some people Many people, but people notice these things. They will want to know how we are able to do these things. What is the reason for our hope? So Peter advises us to be prepared to give our reasons. And this is not about apologetics. This is not about proving the existence of God. It's about our personal experience with God. It's about telling others what God has done for us. Over in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus uh, is encountered by a man who is tormented by a legion of demons, unclean spirits. And after he's cleansed this man, uh, this now uh, delivered man who's free from this oppression, he, he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to get in the boat with Jesus and the disciples and become a part of the team and, and go with him. But Jesus says no. Mark five nineteen. Jesus says to this man, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He didn't, he didn't need to know all the right theological answers. He didn't need to be able to prove anything or argue anything. He only needed to know how much the Lord had done for him. We too can simply be prepared to speak of our own experience with Christ. To give a reason for the hope we have. And you know, I'm going to guess that most of us in this room haven't been delivered by a legion of demons. So we may feel like we don't have a story to tell, but you do. What is your story? Where has God met you? Where has Christ ministered to you? Where has he encouraged you? That's your story. 
we need to have the ability to give a reason for the hope that we have. We need to have, we need to be able to give reasons for our ability to refuse to return evil for evil and insult for insult, for the ability, for the courage we have to bless those who hate us. In the last part of verse 15, Peter adds this. Even as we do these things, he says, but do this. Give reasons for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now let's not, let's not miss this. There's a lot of power in those two verses, a lot of hope and a lot of potential. You see, there's something about us as we follow Jesus, as we are transformed and ever transforming into the image of Christ, we can become unflappable, gentle, respectful, full of good behavior, even when it's difficult or challenging or painful. And lives lived like that speak. But friends, we we do not do this very well these days. Our culture has discipled the church in how to repay evil for evil and insult for insult. Our culture is doing a masterful job at undiscipling or de-discipling us. But Peter asks us to think again. He asks us to model our lives after Jesus, to actively choose to bless those who curse us, who hate us, and who do evil to us. He exhorts us to become zealots for what is good. In verse 17, Peter summarizes what he's been saying all along. He said it several times. He says it once again slightly, uh, slightly differently. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, and if the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, we can either suffer for doing evil or we can suffer for doing good. Which will it be? It is better when given the choice to suffer for doing the right thing, Peter reminds us. To suffer for doing the right thing is objectively better because it is more like Christ and it is what God asks us to do. It is practically better because our behavior toward others has the power to transform our enemies. As verse 16 reminds us, if we are gentle and respectful, if we keep a clear conscience about how we interact with those who malign us, quote, those who speak maliciously against our good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Our gentleness, our respect, our blessing, our good behavior have the power to transform people. They have the power to transform people. They will see our good works and hopefully become ashamed of their own evil works. Will that lead them to Christ? Well, we can't guarantee. We cannot guarantee that if we act lovingly toward our enemies, they will be ashamed and repent. But we can almost guarantee that if we act hatefully toward them, violently toward them, they will not be ashamed and will not repent. To borrow from the Apostle Paul once more, Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil 
but overcome evil with good. Now, it would be easy, and many have done so, to see this heaping of coals on our enemy's head as a sort of twisted revenge. But that actually works against everything that uh, Paul is calling on us to engage in this passage, the attitude. We, we do not treat our enemies lo- in loving ways because in the end, God will get them. No, to heap coals on one's head was a metaphor in the ancient world for shame and repentance. To heap burning coals on one's head was a metaphor in the ancient world for shame and repentance. The message translation renders that verse this way. Your generosity will surprise your enemy with goodness. The goal is that our enemies will be won over to us and to our faith by our kindness, which, by the way, is what Paul says about God's kindness in Romans 2.4. It is God's kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance. Not God's judgment and not our judgment. Returning blessing for insult, kindness for unkindness, peace for dissension is powerful, and it can be transformative. With only a few days of that Twitter exchange between Michael Beatty and Patton Oswalt, Michael Beatty's GoFundMe page had surpassed its $5,000 goal several times over. To date, I just checked it the other day, uh, over $48,000 has been raised. In response, Beatty tweeted back to Patton Oswalt, Patton, you have humbled me to the point where I can barely compose my words. You have caused me to take pause and reflect on how harmful words from my mouth could result in such an outpouring. Thank you for this, and I will pass this on to my cousin who needs help. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, Give them something to drink. If they are sick and overwhelmed with medical bills, click to donate. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Living as Peter challenges us to live can be transformative for our enemies overcoming evil with good can be transformative but even if it doesn't transform our enemies it will transform us for we will become more and more and more like jesus would you pray with me good and gracious god we thank you for the words of Scripture. We thank you for the examples in the pages of Scripture of Jesus, of course, and of others. We thank you for Peter's words. We thank you even for the example of Patton Oswalt, who manages to show us what it might look like. We pray, O oh God, that you would cause this word to go with us, that we would, first of all, know that we have been vindicated, that we would know that you, you are with us, that you are for us, that ultimately no harm can come to us, because you are for us. And Lord, would you take these truths, these promises, and use them to encourage us, to exhort us, to empower us, to enable us to become more like you and to do good to those who wish us evil, to bless those who curse us, to love those who hate us. And may you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise in Jesus' name.
Amen.